I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She, a podcast where women who are leaders in their industries, companies, and most importantly, their lives, share inspiring stories about obstacles they've overcome. 40 years of working in a male-dominated industry has prepared me for the task of interviewing these courageous, successful women and to share stories and insights of my own along the way. Listen up, future leaders. This is Leading She. In this episode, I interview Linda Clement Holmes, an accomplished female leader with a long career at Procter & Gamble, one of the nation's largest corporations. We cover topics such as the challenges of not only being a woman in a male-dominated industry, but also a woman of color. So welcome, Linda. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. And for listeners who may not know Procter & Gamble, we in Cincinnati know it very well. It's a large company, one of the largest here in Cincinnati. Employs right around 100,000 people. It ebbs and flows with uh, changes in the employment uh, group and then buying and selling of companies. But it's an American multinational consumer goods corporation, uh, headquartered here, of course, founded in the 1830s, specializes in a wide range of personal health and consumer health products, personal care, hygiene products, a lot of brands that you would recognize like Tide Detergent. Uh, beauty, grooming, uh, they buy and sell companies all the time, but it's uh, regarded as a good company, been around a long time, and uh, a lot of folks in, in town uh, work there. So about $67 billion in sales. So, um, so Linda comes to us from a uh, strong corporate environment. I thought she would be a great guest. Uh, she and I know each other from the YWCA board. And we were both career women of achievement and are part of the academy of the YWCA. And we co-chaired the luncheon mm-hmm. in, was it 2012 or 13? It was 13, wasn't I think it? it 13. Mm-hmm. 2013. We had a good time. Mm-hmm. We had uh, Diana Nyad as the speaker that year. And then we, we had a good time. So it was fun to serve with you. But um, So let's uh, just start by you talking about your progress or your your advancement, your your career at Procter & Gamble, your career at P&G over 35 years. Kind of where did you start and then what was the progression of your career? Right. So I started um, in P&G in December. Well, actually, I graduated from Purdue University, I should say, in December of 1982. And I started with P&G January 31st of 83. So when I retired, I retired literally 35 years to the day, to the day. To the day. To the day, to the exact day, 35 wow. years. Um, and I started, and, and I'm an IT person by trade, so my degree at Purdue um, is in industrial management and computer science. So the industrial management degree at Purdue is in the business school. So think of it as a uh, a business major with a technical minor. That's the way to think about okay. it. So I always think of myself as a business person who has a strong technical uh, bent. That's the way I think about it. And when I say technical, I mean information technology, mm-hmm. IT. Um, so I started in PNG and um, as as general in that field as an analyst or systems analyst. So you do things that are particularly back 35 years ago, now 37 years ago. Um, and this was, it's hard to think about it. This was before cell phones. This was before yep. the internet. Right. This was before PCs and laptops and iPads and all these kind of things. So it was a very different world <laughs> back then. Um, so big mainframe computers, those kind of things. So that's where I started. I started in a and an organization supporting large corporate application systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I did. 
Um, and then I went from that to I really discovered um, I liked to be on what was the leading edge of things at that time. And somebody actually listened to me. Um, and I went from one extreme to the other. So I went from supporting big corporate applications and mainframes to literally, and this is 35 years ago, to artificial intelligence, which actually interesting today is a is a more well-known term. Right. AI. AI, right. Mm-hmm. Back then it was, a, you know, odd term, yeah. really odd. <laughs> Computers know more than we do. Exactly. What? It was it was very odd. Right. Um, so I actually did that kind of work 30, 35, 33 uh, years ago. Um, so I did several assignments um, sort of on that leading edge side and then um, took a role in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and that was in the sales, the company sales organization. But we had people who were in sales who, and this is selling to P&G's customers like Winn-Dixie or Publix or those are the, the, the top grocery stores we had at the time out of Florida. Um, but they were people who, salespeople who had a technology bent. They were good at analyzing um, scanner data, which is the data when you scan the products across. There's, there's a lot of data you get from that as um, the stores do. And then they share that with companies like P&G. So then we know kind of like what's selling and so forth. Well, there were salespeople who had more of a leaning toward that than others. Most salespeople are not technologists in general, but there were a few that were. So it was the first time I ever had people reporting to me who were not technologists. So I had both salespeople and I had IT people, and that was the first time, which was a, it was a learning experience in and of itself. Right. Very different personalities. Very different. Very, yes. very different. Um, I learned that salespeople can't keep a secret if you to save their life. And I would say <laughs> things like, this is new, so don't tell anybody. And they went out and told everybody. So, <laughs> um, so from there, I came back uh, to Cincinnati, um, and I spent quite a bit of time and assignments in our central IT organization. So whether it was telecommunications or... Um, and by then, the you know the PC was coming along, and Microsoft, and all those kind of things. So I I spent quite a few years there, um, and then um, went out with my first child, um, and then came back. And I remember saying, um, and I've always been this way that I'll do whatever the company needed me to do. I don't have a you know, particular bent on this or that, and I would work anywhere except this one area. I didn't want to work in this one area with this one person, but I'm okay with everything else. And guess where I ended up? There. In that one area with that one person. <laughs> But that in and of itself was a learning opportunity, too, because right. I feel you can learn something from everybody. Yes, even um, the people you don't even like. Even the people you don't like or you don't think that you can learn something from. Right. So actually, I did. What did you learn? Um, I learned how to deal with difficult people. That's the first thing. Right. Um, and then I also learned that, um, and, and this was in the marketing area, because I've pretty much been um, engaged with every functional organization in P&G, except for, well, I can't even say that anymore, finance. But this was in marketing. And I learned about how people like that think, um, which on the outside looking in, I didn't understand as well. So I, I took a step back and said, okay, this it is what it is. So let's make the best of what this is. And that's one of the things that I did. Now, some of the other things I was right about, you know, okay, so I sort of put that aside. Mm-hmm. But there were some things to learn. There was, there's always something to learn. And I'm a lifelong learner. I believe in learning every single day. And I learned, I learned some things around marketing specifically um, from that person that I hadn't expected. Right. Um, so the, I think the message there is to keep yourself open. Absolutely. To learning, even from the people that maybe you don't like. Absolutely. And, uh, absolutely. How can, you, how can you, I don't want to say use this person, but what can you learn from this person that can help you? Absolutely. And sometimes those people are successful for different reasons than what you think. 
success looks like. Mm-hmm. And you can learn from that as well. It may not be the way you choose it, but you, you can always learn, okay, now I understand this or that. And I think it also helps in dealing with other people sometimes. Mm-hmm. In that particular assignment, I probably had um, two or three leaders who were my business partners, so to speak, who were um, known and notorious for being difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I found ways to deal with them because I learned things. And whenever you actually, to those kind of people, seem welcoming and open to learning, they love sharing what they know. Yes. Right? right. They love doing that. So you actually learn quite a bit. And then you think toss out the things that you think they're not relevant, but you actually do learn something. And then you find ways to be successful and productive with that person. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Which you can't do if you're if you're resistant to begin with. Right. So you're you're with this. Uh, where did you go from there? Where, where did you? So um, after that, then um, I had, like I said, I had other sort of central uh, IT roles. Um, then I also did a couple of what I'll call development, not development from a career standpoint, but technology development. Mm-hmm. So continue to be more leading edge kinds of things. Um, and then one of the things that was a big turning point in Procter Gamble's history was um, the move to outsourcing. Mm. And um, that was a really big deal because um, it was a time when outsourcing was a big uh, trend in the industry. What year was that? Oh, that would have been 2001, I believe, 2000, mm-hmm. 2001. Mm-hmm. So the company had done a big uh, restructure, and that was in um, like 99, I think. Um, and following out of that, what they did was combined all of the company's functions that are not product-specific into one shared services organization. So if it wasn't specific to, say, baby or beauty or whatever or paper, then it might have been the accounting functions. It might have been um, real estate functions. It might have been IT. It might have been mm-hmm. some of the human resource, you know, kind of expense reporting, you know, whatever, all those functions together. And in that particular scenario, the company then looked at outsourcing the entirety of all of those to one company. Mm-hmm. So within that model, I would have been on the side to be outsourced. Oh, so it was it was a very um, eye opening and actually humbling, you know, sort of experience because probably scary too, extremely scary right. because you don't know what's going to happen. Right. You have no information, and this went on for. 18 months, I believe. Oh. So there were 7,000 of us that were clueless. And this was the first time Procter Gamble had ever done anything like this. Right. So it was new to everybody. We didn't understand it. And it was, and it's, when you, when you come from a company like ours, where it's a grow from within company, where, you know, people who change light bulbs for a living, making that up, you know, they may retire after 35 years as right. a millionaire, because that's, that's the way the company was yeah. built. My great uncle retired from P&G Millionaire. Exactly. He didn't realize how much money he had. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because that's that was sort of the way the culture was, mm-hmm. and that's the way you thought about it. So I was like, oh, no, you didn't quit. And you didn't because you're, if you just stay and you keep doing and then you retire as a millionaire. Well, this was the first time it kind of didn't quite happen that way. And that's not totally true. The first time we had, we started some separations earlier than that. And that was sort of the first sort of trend. Of, okay, what's what's going on here? We don't, we don't do that. Well, the outsourcing was another big, big sort of trend mm-hmm. in that. And I was on the side to be outsourced. And this lasted for 18 months. We got all the way to the 11th, 12th, 15th hour. And our CEO at the time, A.G. Laffley, decided not to proceed with the deal. I mean, it was literally, literally the 15th hour. The contract was on his desk. He was supposed to sign it. And there was a big global webcast, you know, the next morning. And, you know, we had people around the world ready to, like, field questions and blah, blah, blah. And then it literally, that, that hour webcast of him talking about this turned into two minutes of, I didn't sign it. Literally. And did he say why? 
he said he didn't think he didn't sign it. it. He good. said it wasn't the right thing wasn't to do. Wasn't the right thing to was do. Was not the right thing to do. And mm. I I have such respect for him for doing that. Yeah, that's because really at cool. the end of the day he made a decision that he felt was the right decision to make. Mm-hmm. And for him, it was like put all the eggs in one basket just didn't make sense. And it turned out it was a really great decision because that particular company, EDS, did not. I remember EDS. Yes, it did yeah. not. Exactly. You remember EDS. Yeah. It did not um, survive in its current state. It got That's bought right. out. And so, right. So what we did was we um, split up that effort. Instead of putting all the eggs in one basket of one company, we did sort of the best of breed. And then it was a specific um, outsource. Best of. Best of breed. So Best of breed. Meaning that um, instead of having... Uh, multiple functions being outsourced. It was IT outsourcing, then a facilities outsourcing, and then mm-hmm. a um, um, uh, finance and accounting, you know, sort mm-hmm. of so very specific, targeted. Right. And in that scenario, then I was leading, then I became the leader for the IT outsourcing. So I went from being to be outsourced to leading the outsourcing for IT. I see. So I switched sides, which mm-hmm. was in and of itself. And again, I'm back to learning. One of the things that I did was because I had now been through that experience for 18 months, there were things I declared I was not going to do because I knew what it felt like. Mm-hmm. So, for example, being in the dark, not knowing, you know, people are trying to make life decisions and you can't make a life decision right. if you don't know what your life is going to be. So be transparent with people. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that we did was so be as transparent as possible. Mm-hmm. And when we had to go dark because of contract negotiations, we told people we have to go dark. And we're going to be dark for this long or whatever. Right. But we're going to be working on these kinds of things, but we can't so talk about So they it. know and they have some stability. Exactly, exactly. Right. The other thing was, too, was it, it drug out. You know, the, mm-hmm. the one before drug out, you know, 18, 24 months. And I said, no, we're going to go as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So um, we literally went from um, RFP, request for proposal, to signing of a contract in, ninety, I think, 94 days or something. Mm-hmm. And all the attorneys says, oh, no, there's no way you can go that fast. So, yes, we can. You can do anything you, you choose to do. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. Okay. So I became – so on that side. So then after that, we had to do the governance for that. Um, but it was – my job was to get people – 2,400 people landed in another company safely. Mm-hmm. Cool. So then after that, I moved to Europe. Okay. So my family and I moved to Europe. We moved to Geneva, Switzerland for um, three years. And there I sort of was running the um, shared services organization for Central Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Hmm. So that was 117 countries. And one day I might be in South Africa. Next day I might be in Egypt. And then I might be in Saudi. Then I might be in Russia. Wow. Um, so all of that. So to say there was learning there is just a gross understatement. So, yeah. But it was probably one of the strongest assignments I ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back then um, to the U.S., then I did a couple of more sort of what I'll call development uh, assignments and then sort of creating new things. That's that's where I get most of my energy from is doing something new. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, and doing that's mm-hmm. really exciting. I did several of those. Um, and then probably the others, uh, what I'll call that, everybody has career-defining moments, I think. One of mine was doing that outsourcing. Mm-hmm. Another one was moving to Europe in, in, right. in that role. The third probably biggest one was um, being the company's chief diversity officer globally. That was the first time we'd ever had one. Mm-hmm. And I did that at the same time I was doing my other job. Right. And I, you know, I thought, I'm an African woman. Well, woman, I know diversity. And right. I, I, I know nothing. Right. You ever watch Game of Thrones? You know nothing, Jon Snow. I knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Winter knew is nothing. coming. Exactly right. I knew nothing. And I learned a lot even there. Um, and that was probably the third defining. The That's defining great. Moment, so you know. diversity within, and you're a woman of color, as you'd right. mentioned. Right. Um, and this was global diversity. Global diversity. Right. Yeah. So right. what does that look like around race, around gender? 
Yes, all of the above. Yes, and LGBTQ, more. all of okay. it, all of it, mm-hmm. and that's what I said. I knew nothing. I knew my my lens, right? I didn't How know you every- looked at it exactly. I didn't know everybody else's lens. And when you're talking about that, you know, what does that look like in Romania? Mm-hmm. What does that look like in South Africa? What does that look like in Saudi? And why do you need to be concerned about it? Because as a company, we believe we believe you know that diversity made better for better business. Um, uh, success and it did, and there Touché. was data that proved it. <laughs> so the more diverse you are, the better your business results are, and then and there was proof in that. Yeah, so and it was science a, around it. I'm sure it, there is. It's a business decision. A lot so of companies could, could right. learn there. Tell me about tell me about then, not to skip forward because you've got a very impressive career, very long career. But tell me about the move into your last position. Chief. So my, right. So my last position was the um, as chief information officer, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that. Took me to like I said the last two years, and I and I will also say so that was my quote C-suite assignment, mm-hmm. and I will say that so that so think of the role as being responsible for all of the IT people in the company, okay, as well as for the IT direction of anything that we did. I see. The challenge that I had was that um, different than most every other company, um, where the chief information officer, the CIO, has all of that responsibility directly. Um, I had. Um, accountability, responsibility, but no real people or budget to, to do that. That was somewhere mm-hmm. else. That was in a shared services organization. So the business model was very different, very challenging to deal with. So it made that whole experience quite different and difficult. It was by far the most difficult assignment I had in 35 years. Mm. Um, and I would say probably not in a good way, you know, mm-hmm. um, for all practical purposes. Um, I, for for 30 some plus years, I had fun at what I did. Yeah. I loved my job. Really? Um, I am a technologist at heart. I use technology for anything I can now, yeah. still do. I love teaching myself things. Mm-hmm. Um, but those few years were probably the most difficult and not for reasons that I would have thought in terms of the challenge of the business or mm-hmm. this. Or that. No, it, it had more to do with um, interpersonal kind of things. People. I think. people. Yeah, it's the people. people. It's the people. And we're going to we're going to get there. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And I, one of the things I learned just as an aside from you, I remember when we worked together, you had a, a technique, a practice of uh, writing emails on a Sunday and then setting them up to be delivered on right. Monday. I right. learned that from right. you and That's I right. do it. Right. Because you know, I didn't want to like hit anybody on Sunday exactly. with, with something. Right. But on Monday at eight o'clock or nine they, o'clock, they, they, they were going to get it. It's fair email. game. That's right. They're right. And my folks <laughs> still say do they, it. They've been Linda slammed. Right. Because it was Monday morning and it's like it's fair game Monday, but I don't want to take away their time. Right. Sundays just because are I choose sacred. To do, right, right. Just because I choose to do it. Yeah. You're working. Yeah. Right. I do this. I do it. Right. So right. I learned that from you. Um, um, tell me a little about your personal background. Where did you grow up? What did, uh, you know, siblings uh, and, and you know, parents, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and then um, maybe discuss how you feel like that shaped, you right. know. So um, I was born in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, was raised in Gary, Indiana, the land of Michael Jackson. Yes. Never met him. Didn't know anything about him. Okay. <laughs> um, and um, I am a daughter of teachers. Okay. Um, my dad died when I was uh, 14, unfortunately, mm. uh, and my mom actually just passed away recently. But both of them were, even though they didn't know it or say it, they were actually technologists. We had the first Betamax. Remember Betamax? Yes. So it was like that. It, they were big and honking, and they would like they pop up, and the tape would you know jump out at you. And that was between it was Betamax and and VHS. Remember the yeah. big VHS right. you know, wars? We had the first one. It took up half the kitchen table, right. right? But anytime something came out like that, we had one of those. So yeah. um, we that's the world that I grew up in. It was never a fear of that whatsoever. Never. Yeah. 
Um, at one point, my mother um, had six PCs in her bedroom, and she taught other teachers um, about technology. That's part of what her job mm-hmm. was. So that's the environment that I grew up in. I mm-hmm. was the youngest of three. My older two siblings were six and seven years older than I am, so they were usually in college, you know, when I was in high school and, mm-hmm. and so forth. So it was my mom and I for the longest. But then, so I always knew that's that's what I grew up in. That's the environment that I grew mm-hmm. up in. Most of my family, my father's side of the family, um, in fact, my grandparents were from Cincinnati. Okay. So we grew up coming to Christmas and Thanksgiving and so forth here in Cincinnati. So this is where I wanted to end up. And I also wanted to be a person who used technology to help drive business, not be mm-hmm. the thing that, you know, sort of, that's the end all to be all. It has to have some purpose. Right. You know, for me, it's not technology for technology's sake. Right. So, so that's that's mm-hmm. the environment that I grew up. I grew up in an environment. So, teachers, learning is important all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it wasn't a matter of if you're going to college. It was where. It wasn't even when. When was even an option. Mm-hmm. It was where, and we would find a way. We could. We didn't have a lot, but we'll figure it out. You know how to right. get there. Right. Right. Yeah. One of the things that I I love about you is, and I relate to, is your feistiness and your directness. Where, where did you get that? Um. Probably from um, well, probably growing up in an environment. You know, it's it's a predominantly African American city, mm-hmm. um, and I also this sounds a little bit odd. I was I'll say my other mother, so to speak, was um, I was a dancer from the age of two all the way through college. Mm. The woman that ran the the school, the dance school, um, would sit us down as adolescents and teenagers for hours and just give us life lessons all the time. And I think that also influenced a lot of what a lot of what um, uh, I learned because she talked about um, all sorts of things, right? That yeah, that and then I had aunts um, on my father's side who were um, deliberate in mm-hmm. saying, "Well, you know, you don't let that stop you," you know, so right. forth. Direct so, approach, exactly. Direct, up. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think probably those are the ways that I mm-hmm. I sort of picked those things up, and then I just learned along the way. As I quote grew up in the company from mm-hmm. other people, and this is part of learning. You see something that you like in somebody else, then you—is that something you can think you can take? Then right. take that and build it and make it your own. Yeah, that's great. So tell me, um, you have been in a uh, large company like Procter and Gamble, fairly male-dominated as you rose the ranks mm-hmm. there, um, and there were plenty of times I think that. Uh, I would have to imagine, and I think you've said, is that you were the only woman at the table, perhaps right. only the African, only African American right. uh, woman or right. African American there. Total right. Mm-hmm. Um, and how? What, what advice would you give to women as they are the only woman that come into the boardroom and sit at the table? What What advice? What What? How did you conduct yourself? Um, I always thought about just because I was the only of anything mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't mean I have to act like I'm the only. Of anything, I have just a right to be there as anybody else does. Right. So that's the way I chose to act, um, and uh, whether whether that comes from posture, um, I'm not all that tall, but that doesn't mean I can't act like I'm tall. Um, <laughs> you know, or, or whether it's projecting your voice. Projecting your voice again, yeah. not all that tall, but that doesn't mean that I can't project my voice. You know, just as strongly as any other person at the table, mm-hmm. and you know, and I, and I always say too, is like every other person at the table, male, they all go to the bathroom like everybody else. It's it's they they don't have anything that's um, superhuman, mm-hmm. you know, right? And and I'm here for a reason. Somebody thought I, I deserve to be here. That's why I'm here. Right. That's why you're here. That's and I think sometimes women in in settings like this. 
uh, will wait to speak, will wait for that uh, lull in the conversation, right. which often in meetings never happens. Never happens. So you have so to break in. So you've got to break in. You break in. You've got to be uh, impolite and, and interrupt sometimes right. when you, and you have to kind of find your way. You can't. You can't interrupt, you know, at the wrong time, and it's it's an art, I think. Right. And, you, and you can't be talking like this. You, you can't talk, talk like, the little right, tiny voice. Nobody's like going to take you right. seriously, right? You right? can't talk like a little mouse. You know, you have to project your voice right. so that they hear you when you're making the break. You can't make a break like that. You have to make a break, right, in the conversation and project. And project. And everybody in the room needs to hear what you have to say, right. whether you have a mic or not. Right. Exactly. Know? And everybody likes. Sometimes people like to fill the airspace just because. That doesn't mean you can't break break in when they need to. Right. And, and you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we can sit there and listen and we know that there's something that we need to say because it needs to be said. And we can do it in a way that isn't, you know, acrimonious. Right. It isn't uh, attacking or confrontational necessarily. But it uh, needs to be said, and you have to take the risk. Right. right. And a lot of times in a technical field, where often there aren't as many women, and this is why I'm so glad to see that STEM programs and so forth exist to get more girls um, to grow up in this particular field. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times there weren't. So I might have been the only woman, you know, and my whole organization might have been men that reported to me. You can't let that intimidate you either. Right. Right. So, again, you're there for a reason. Um, and probably my best learning experience came really early in my career when um, there was a, a woman, African-American woman. She was the first um, woman at this particular level. And she didn't have a strong technical background, but she didn't let that stop her either. And she had a really technical person, and he was trying to intimidate her with a whole bunch of things. And I, re- I remember to this day, she leaned across the table. We were the same height, so she wasn't very tall. Leaned across the table and put a perfectly manicured finger in this man's face. And said, no, this is what you will do. And I said, that was the best thing ever. And from <laughs> then on, I said, okay, I got it now. Right, right. You <laughs> can do did. that. And he straightened up after that. Right. Too. Sometimes you got to grab him by the shirt collars. That's, that's right. And show him his boss. And that's, she, right. I, she leaned all the and put her perfectly manicured fingernail in his face. That's, right. <laughs> okay. Early in my career, I got really good advice. Uh, <clears throat> I supervised a group of 12 women at 21 years old mm-hmm. in a large you know, mortgage company. And uh, the person I was taking her spot, you know, was supervisor, I was taking her spot, and she said, you have to assume authority. Mm-hmm. You can't uh, be um, questioning your own authority. Right. You have to come in with authority. Yeah. You are the boss. You don't have to get, you know, get reaffirmation that right. you are the boss and that you have authority uh, right. for, for for them. You don't have to ask for permission. Exactly. Ex- assume exactly. authority. Assume authority and don't right. wait to be told. Exactly. Don't wait to be told. Right. Um, sometimes I think we see uh, guys, men um, look for promotions, mm-hmm. and and the, the, you know, and I'm ambitious, I'm driven. Right. You are too. You were in your career, um, and that we seek opportunities. We're looking for that next opportunity. And I think you and I share the attitude that I may not know what it's what I need to know when I get in there, but right. I will learn it. Right. Right. And. Right. Um, I will dedicate myself. And back when there wasn't the internet, we went to libraries and went exactly. to encyclopedias, That's something right. called an encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah. I read. That's right. Britannica. I asked a lot of questions. <laughs> right. You know, I 
didn't know everything I needed to know. Right. But I took the risk that I was smart enough to get it exactly. in a short amount of time. Right. And I think a lot of women come into it with saying, oh, I'm not ready. Right, exactly. I'm not. But men don't. They do not. like, I can do that. That's I right. can do that. That's right. That's right. And guys that aren't aren't ready, you know, or aren't qualified for the promotion will volunteer to do it. I can do that. I want to move up. Right. And the woman will sit back. Right. right? Because there's a perfectionism, right? Yes. So we want to make sure we have all of our boxes checked when it doesn't need to be that right. at all. And like like you said, a lot of times our male counterparts will take that risk and say, you know what, I don't have any of what that is. I may only have 10%. That doesn't mean I can't go do it. Right. Right. But, you know, a lot of times women will say, no, I need to have these other three things. And sometimes we let society do that to us, too. Right. They push us back Absolutely. and, and push, us, push right. us down. And we we have to have the confidence if we are to you know, want if we want to advance, we just have to right. take the risk that we will. And what's the fallback? Right. What's the, what's the plan B? You've right. always got a plan B, right? Right, right, right. And some of that is confidence, I think, too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes um, I think women don't have enough confidence in themselves mm-hmm. when they should. Right. When they should, because it's, it's there. And like men, for some reason, and I think society has a lot to play with that, but they don't have any more skills. Like they're, they're not always the, the smartest person in the room, but they may project that. Mm-hmm. Right. But women are just as qualified, sometimes more so. Right. Right. In fact, a lot of times I say that women are because we have to multitask so often mm-hmm. and have to do so many things at once, whether that's being a mother and a wife and a this and a this and a this and still show up. Right. right. Well, a lot right. of times that's not the way others have to deal with it. Right. And uh, I think you and I share some experience in this. Uh, there was a time in my career in the early 90s when I had two small children. Mm-hmm. I was commuting from Dayton to Cincinnati. We were moving to Cincinnati, but we hadn't yet, so we had our house up for sale. So every day we had to clean the house yeah. and make sure it yep. was ready to show. <laughs> yeah. And then I was expected to be at my desk at 8.30, yeah. you know. And, you know, it was always, you know, the whole FaceTime, you know, who's right. here. And and some of my associates were in the – I was in the real estate you know, mortgage area, they were in the bond area, and they'd been there since 730. Yeah, exactly. Now, they were there reading the Wall Street Journal right. or reading a magazine, looking like they'd just t- taken a nap. Right. I'm walking in, like, at 830. You're stressed. I've, I've gotten the kids ready to go <laughs> right. to school. I've, I've driven right. an hour. I've cleaned the house. Right. And, um, and I'm there. I'm like, Phew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So, and not all, you know, when we go into these situations, a lot of men have, you know, stay-at-home wives. Right, they, exactly. they take care of things. And so they don't see all of that that we have to no, do, right? No, You've they, had experience no, with that. I do. And and particularly in my last role as CIO was probably the most difficult um, because when I was a CIO and on like in the C-suite, C-suite so to speak, mm-hmm. I was the only one that still had kids at home with no stay-at-home spouse. Um, who could do all those kind of things. Um, Everybody else had a stay-at-home spouse or their children were already grown and out and so forth. So the other thing, too, matters in terms of age because I, you know, still did have younger children. A lot of them may be older men, you know, so they didn't, they've already, their kids are already grown. Not that they even did it at the time, but still. So I did. I have to, when the call comes from school, it comes from me. You know, when I left my my gym bag at home, it came to me. You know, I'm it, that call came to me, or right. or I forgot my heart, or whatever. So all of those things, where you know, 
a lot of all of my counterparts, men and women, actually, um, I was the only one that had that problem. Had support at home had support to take home. care of all that stuff so right. they could focus completely right. and engage completely right. exactly. at work. Exactly. And then I also had my, my elderly mother living with me as well, oh. who, you know, over time needed 24 by 7 care, which, you know, we got, which that helped. But then, so that so I was a sandwiched sort of generation. I had both of those at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I used to joke about getting a wife. I need I need one of those. I need to go get me a wife. <laughs> so I to the to the degree that I could, I did. You know, right. somebody yeah. who could do a lot Clean of clean your things. house and take care exactly, of kids like, and whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So I let go of a lot of those kind of things. Yeah. But still, at the end of the day, you're still mom. Right. You're still mom, and mm-hmm. when they're sick, they want mom there exactly. with them. Right. 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 Um, did you ever feel like there were? Um, um, double standards around being a woman, maybe a woman of color, around your work ethic, uh, what was expected of your peers versus what was expected of you Mm. in in any situations? Well, even just as we were talking, you know, I think the FaceTime thing, um, you know, really matters. So, for example, it, it wasn't until this last few years in that last role that I feel like from the time I was a new hire, that was the last time I sort of felt this way, that people needed to see where you were, even though my counterparts could be gone for weeks because we had global jobs. So we'd be traveling, you know, however it was. So I'd have counterparts, men, who'd be gone for four, five, six weeks. But then I I would start to hear, and particularly via my admin, who was sort of my front door, so to speak, comments around, well, where is she and so forth. And it even if I was traveling or not traveling or if I had to go do a school event or whatever, there was more of that for me than there was anybody else. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, so there is what? a double standard. There is a double Where standard. Where is she? Exactly. As opposed to, well, that person I haven't seen in two months. Right. And Why like, are you not expecting him exactly. to be sitting here like exactly. you are me, right? Exactly. So there was a lot of that, and I thought that was quite it, – it was a double standard. And yeah. to the point where my admin, she really got upset about it because she'd worked for other you know, vice chairmen and so forth. So she has a lot of history. She said, I've never seen this happen before. Why are they treating you that way? Right. And so she was really upset about it because she said, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I said, it's not. It's a double standard. It is for sure a double standard. It is a double standard. I had that experience in a, when I was in a corporation where we traveled a lot because we were out looking at properties. And so two days out of the week, often I would be traveling to mm-hmm. some city to look at properties. And one day my assistant, my boss's assistant came in and she said, Susan, what time did you get in here mm-hmm. today? I'm like, well, I had a dentist appointment, so I think it was nine. And it's like, okay, and she's writing it yeah, down. Right. It's like, she's keeping track of my exactly. time. Exactly, exactly. And so we had this off-site company meeting. Everybody was there, something I regret doing. But what I said, you know, when we were, I don't know, somebody brought something up, and I said, I don't understand why you're tracking my time. Mm-hmm. Because when I'm not here, I'm I'm working too. And do you want to know when I was at the O'Hare Airport yes. at one o'clock in the morning trying to get out? Do you want to know about those hours too? Right. You know, wasn't yeah. the right time, wasn't the right way to do it. But I was so aggravated yeah. that they were keeping track of my time. Exactly. You know? Particularly when you're in the kind of roles that we have, where right. you are working a lot, like around the clock. Right. Um, and I feel like people in in our department said, Susan's never here. She's yeah, over there. Exactly. Well, I'm out working. You exactly. know, when I'm not here, I'm working. And I might have a dentist appointment, but I will be at the Chicago airport waiting for my flight if I need to be. Right. And I get up at four to get my kids ready and work. Exactly. Exactly. And then that's not, you know, my, my analogy has always been if I was running a race and there were, you know, myself and my colleagues all on the starting lineup, we all have the same, like all things being equal, same skills, same experiences. Mm-hmm. 
what I have on my back is a backpack. And in the backpack are kids and my mom and this and that, all the things you forget, spouse, all that stuff is in the backpack. My colleagues don't have that, but we got to take off and run. And I have to run harder and faster to keep up or even go past. Right. They don't have the weight of the backpack, you know, behind they them. They don't. And what can corporations learn, like P&G, like corporations, learn about women's lives that they don't completely understand, I don't think, about what we have and all the other things going on? What what can we teach them and what do they need to know? Well, and in fact, I used to use that analogy with them. I, I use that exact analogy with them. And it was helpful to understand because up until that point, um, many of them didn't get it. They didn't get that that was was going on, um, and that part of that is um, when you're in a uh, personnel discussion, for example, and there are comments about well she doesn't want it or so forth because she's working part time and so forth. Well, really, sort of take a step back and said now think about that. Is that comment that you just made because she's working part time, or is because you know she she has to? In fact, part time women actually are more productive than a lot of full time people because they have to be. And often very committed, justice committed, if not more so. If not more so. Mm-hmm. P- look at it in that context. But so it, it's if you're ever in a position to help um, influence, then you have to, you have an obligation, a responsibility to help teach others, teach colleagues to say, no, that's not the right way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as women in particular, we can't sit back and be silent when we hear those kind of comments. We have to speak up. Have to speak uh, it's up. not going to change unless we do. Correct. Right? That is correct. Yeah. Um, have you had experience in your in your career um, as you've risen the ranks and you've gotten up to a really top spot at the company where people may have some envy about you being there and uh, perhaps there's sabotage that goes on or anything like that? Any stories there? Yeah, the, probably the, the strongest one was that last role that I had. And it was um, um, there was a colleague who, you know, for years I was uh, – I thought I, you know, was – had a friendship with, and in PNG because we grow up together. You know, right. you work with people for many, many years. Right, because a lot of people get there and they stay, and they right? stay, and, and then you go develop through relationships. Exactly, right. um, and particularly in a function like IT, which is smaller than, say, marketing, which is like a big, you know, large function. So we all, you know, pretty much know each other, and you kind of grow up together. And um, when it came time to um, decide who would be the next CIO, so to speak, the board of directors and the CEO, they chose me over, you know, some other people. And one person in particular had a really hard time with that. And he was quite vocal about that. It didn't, made no secret about it, frankly, both in his, his, um, actions as well as what he said to people. Mm-hmm. Um, like you got the job. He, he got, wanted it. He wanted it. And he thought that I didn't deserve it. He thought that he was more qualified. So the job that I had though made, um, him accountable to me for some things. Mm-hmm. So I had to finally call him in and I said, look, you know, I understand that you have, you're upset about this choice, that you don't agree with it. That's not my problem. If you have a problem with that, you need to go talk to the board of directors and CEO. I didn't make the decision, they did. So you deal with that. My problem is I want to know whether you're on my team or not. And if you are, great. If you're not, you need to tell me that. Right. And to his credit, he was truthful and said, I don't know. I don't know. So I, I appreciated that because I would rather have truth than Rather not. than say, yeah, I'm on your team. What do you mean? Exactly. And then to he go said, out and say, I don't know. Right. Exactly. He said, I don't know. So I had I had complete respect for that answer. Mm-hmm. So then he came back, you know, call it four, five, six weeks later and said, okay, I've thought about it and I do want to be on the team. I said, excellent. And he was fantastic for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he sort of went back and then started being um, just incredibly... Um, 
destructive in terms of what we were trying to do. And it was sad because I think um, there's a lot we could have gotten done that we get, didn't get done. And when I think about what happens in our government sometimes, this is kind of what I see. We let the politics get in the way of what we're trying to do, right. what's best for whatever it is. And there was a lot of that. But what made it worse, though, was that my own leadership, when I started to say, this is just not going to work because he's not going to. People gonna, you reported to, you're he, saying, this guy right. isn't working out. He's right. sabotaging. He's just destructive. They didn't, right. They did not believe me. He didn't. They didn't listen they to did you. They did not listen. They didn't believe me, no matter how many examples I gave them, how many other people. And, and it was just over time, 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 and time again that I said, this is another example of where this is not working. And I don't know if they thought, you know, I was just being, oh, she's just being one of those complaining people. No, I wasn't. I gave them specific examples. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until, and it was two years into it, um, that there were people, other vice presidents, and I was a president level, vice president, who said they were going to quit the company if this guy wasn't gone. Right. And so that's when they That's, that's when, they when the people above you, the that's people you up. reported to, it wasn't until they heard it from right. others, maybe white guys. Right. Right. That that they believed it, right? And then that, and so then when they did their own investigation after that, is when they said, okay, yeah, we get it. Yeah. Now by now we've lost eighteen months to twenty four months of of work we could have been doing for the business, right? But we've lost all that time, right? Yeah, and it's what a shame. Yeah, it is a shame. Yeah, what a shame. a shame. Yeah. What advice would you give to women that are in that situation? What would you have done differently? Anything like that? You know, I and I've thought a lot about this. Um, I think probably the other thing I would have done is. Just like I called him in that first time, I probably should have called him again, again, a few other times, again. Yeah, and just say, I don't feel like you're, you said right. you were on my team, but I don't feel it. Right. You know? Even though I, I probably didn't say it as strong as I should have. And I can be fairly direct, um, but I probably should have done that maybe a few more times. Yeah. Right. And just said, okay. Yeah. You know, just, just to sort of really drive it home because it wasn't sinking in. I think if there's, you know, a mistake I can identify in my career, it's, not having those uncomfortable, difficult conversations where you got to get real with each other mm -hmm. and, and avoiding them, thinking, well, it's going to get better. It's not that bad. Would you? Yeah. yeah and I, I had some of those. I tended to get better at that um, as I went along mm -hmm. um, because I do feel that being truthful and direct is better. I used to call it like digging through the froth. I don't like digging through the froth. That takes too much time and energy, yeah. right? All that, you know, just, just tell me just straight out. So I try to do that. But it's also exhausting. Mm -hmm. It can be really exhausting if you're doing the same thing over and over and over again right. with the same person. And they're not changing. And they're not changing. Right. And they're not going to change. Right. So you tend to sort right. of start avoiding that, right? Because right. like, why am I getting anywhere? Why am I doing it? Right. And let, your management isn't, right. isn't listening to you. Exactly. So. so I probably should have just kept kept at it a bit more right. um, than I probably did. That's probably yeah. what I would have done differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's wrap up with this question. I'd like to hear what your thoughts are about, uh, we've got this whole Me Too movement mm -hmm. uh, around us, and right. uh, you and I have been working about the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you're lucky to be retired now. Yes. And enjoying every bit of it. <laughs> I know. I know you yeah, are. I yeah. know about your second yeah, career. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, Along the way in my career, I've seen it. I've heard about it. Um, there is sexual harassment right, right. still going on. There is. There, it was seemed to be more accepted back then. Right. Um, it's never stopped. It never it's never stopped. It never stopped. Right. Um, and but but there wasn't the awareness about it that there is now. Correct. And uh, so and I have a belief that sexual harassment has a lot more to do with power mm -hmm. and intimidation Correct. than anything around sex. Right. Right. Now, you know, we've talked to others within this this podcast where it's like 
don't go, you know, not to blame it on the woman, but don't go out and get drunk and then, you know, use your best judgment. Go right. home early from the party. Right. You know, you're in a professional set. Don't do that. Right. So, you know, um, what what has been your experience? Do you have anybody that you know that has right. experienced this? For me personally, I've been fortunate that I I personally never had it happen to me. So I, I feel blessed from that standpoint. However... Um, I know of multiple other cases. The one, though, that was probably the most telling to me was I had a young cousin um, who 10 years ago or so, um, she's in her early 20s, 22, 23. She didn't work at PNG. She worked somewhere else. And um, she started at this company. You know, she's really excited, really young. And um, she went to, this was actually the day of the Boston Marathon. Um, the the bombing. The bombing. The bombing, yeah. right. So there's a Boston Red Sox game that same day, and I you know, called to check on her and see how she was. And it turns out, you know, so she went to this Red Sox game with some coworkers, including her boss and some other people, and they started bar hopping. Mm. Um, and they went from bar to bar to bar. And then, you know, as you're going down, the number of people that you're with goes down as well. Yeah. She gets down to the, you know, last one, and she's sitting at this table with her boss. And, you know, they've had I don't know how many drinks at that point. Well, and he starts to come on to her and he actually, you know, unzips his pants and pulls his, you know, penis out. And I and her response, you know, was, you know, sort of a she was in shock, I'm sure. In the bar? In the bar. In the bar. In the bar. In the bar. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes, I know. Just don't even get me started. But in the bar. (laughs) And but her response is what also took me aback because she said, ah, you know, she sort of, oh, but you're married. I'm like, that is so the wrong response. That's a. There's lots of things wrong with that. <laughs> there's lots of things wrong with that. But that, that too is the wrong response. And then as she's trying to go home, then he, you know, he gets on the same train. He's supposed to be going this different way, and he continued to do this. And when she she did continue to rebuff him, which was good. But the point is this: she didn't realize because it took me a while to get this out of her. She didn't realize that was sexual harassment. She didn't get it. And I said, when I finally talked to her, I got her to talk about it, she said, well, I thought he he should know better. And I said, sweetie, perverts wear suits. <laughs> you know, and that, that was, and she, and, and then what she also didn't understand, that things at work had changed. Her environment became very hostile. Because she, uh, she talked about it, right? She, she turned him it. in. I finally, you know, convinced her that you she could... needed to report this and so right. forth. And when she did, um, because he's trying to tell her, you know, not don't talk anything about it, you know, the, the, the HR um, organization, they did a whopping two-week investigation, sent a two-line message that said we couldn't find anything and closed it out. Well, then her, you know, she got uh, pulled off of projects, transferred, and then it was it just became a very difficult situation. Where it shouldn't have been. I mean, she didn't do anything wrong. Well, not, maybe, you know, you could say to her, hey, shouldn't have gotten drunk, shouldn't have been yeah, left but, with him. But, still, but it's not her fault. It is not her he, fault. That He's a pervert. He right. you know, came on to her and right, you know, exactly. really, really right. egregious behavior. And what, what really bothered me, too, was that I think we stopped talking about it. Yeah, we did. The, as, we, our, as our generation, our generation of women did. stopped talking right. about it going on. It was going on. We just right. didn't, we didn't have the awareness that right. we had. Right, so this now. younger generation thought it was fixed. Yeah. So that so she said I didn't so they so I tested that with some other women and they said younger women they said oh no we I would have done the same thing because I didn't know I thought that was all fixed no it's not it never right. stopped and it you have to stopped. treat it the way it's supposed to be treated right. which is get up say how dare you right. and walk right. out and that's why I think Me Too is such a big deal because and why some of these stories are so old yeah because people didn't talk about it for so many years we didn't right so it's not like you know people is they've been going on the whole time it just never stopped. Right. We stopped talking about it, and that's where I think part of the problem is. Right. 
And thanks for joining me. I just enjoy your company so much. And good luck in your retirement. I know you have some projects, photography being one of them. Oh, yes. Chapter two. Yeah. Yeah, I can tell you're happy. I am. So So, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Follow us on Instagram at Leading She. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have many great ideas for women leaders. 